Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris your Internet Radio. I'm sorry about the technical difficulties at the beginning and the late start. I had um, automated all of my streams to, to um, five radio streams to cut off automatically and allow me to connect from here. And they're also programmed to cut off automatically at 10.10 p.m. So I had better make sure that I finish my programs in two hours, which usually isn't a problem. And and they will resume playing archives at that time. This is something new I'm experimenting with. If it works, then eventually I'll be able to um, do other things, perhaps um, schedule other programs on Christiania or Internet Radio on, on my five streams, not necessarily on the companion talk show channel. Today is Friday, May 3rd, 2013. Thank you all for listening. And praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. I, I have something, I, I have a story I want to tell. He, he isn't living with me right now, but I have a dog, a beautiful brown Labrador retriever. Quite often, I, I would run around the woods and the fields in the vicinity of my upstate New York home with this dog, and rarely wearing more than a pair of moccasins or sandals or often barefooted, I would get cuts and scrapes on my shins and ankles. After our walk, whether before or after my shower, my dog would insist upon laying at my feet as I typed away on my computer, licking my wounds. Such dogs which generally make excellent companions for men, can seem to be very loving and affectionate towards their masters. That is how, and ostensibly also why, our God made them, so that they may may be of use to us. My dog is is dear to me, and I even miss him in my absence from New York. But that does not mean that I should believe that my dog will be saved, that my dog will be resurrected and accompany me in the kingdom of heaven. Of all creatures, whether we want to think that our God made them as they are or that man created them as hybrids, the endowment of an eternal spirit and the accompanying promises of eternal life belong exclusively to our Adamic race. Think about that the next time an animal licks your wounds, whether that phrase should be understood literally or metaphorically. The kingdom of heaven is not for dogs. We should not project our personal empathy onto the will of our God in violation of his explicit word. There is something which I forestalled discussing in the opening segments of the series, and that is an exposition of the ancient manuscripts which attest to the antiquity and the content of the Book of Acts. For the translations found in the Christogenian New Testament, only manuscripts which are dated to the 6th century and earlier were even considered in the reading. Of these, 
There are 11 ancient papyri, excuse me, and six of these ancient papyri are dated by archaeologists to the 3rd century A.D. Many of the papyri represent only fragments containing portions of the text of Acts. While the great onkyos were produced with more durable material, many of them are also incomplete or even represent mere fragments. For examples among the papyri, and I, I use the, um, the numbering system for documents found in the Mesli Aland Novum Testamentum Grecae, it's called the Gregory Aland system. And, and in the back of, of the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Grecae is an extensive list of the manuscripts, the ancient Greek manuscripts employed in its creation. And next to each one of these numbers is the name of a library or a museum or a university, a catalog number, the name of the collection if the manuscript is part of, the, of, of a collection. The catalog number would help academics and scholars identify the particular manuscript being discussed. The, the, the providence of, and, and its date, the date that the manuscript is believed to, um, to have been created, as dated by the archaeologists who, or, or other scientists or, or, or practitioners, or sometimes antiquities dealers discovered these manuscripts first, but, but the date is generally that understood to be um, the age of the manuscript given by archaeologists and, and other professionals, if we want to call them that. The, um, the, the, there also is listed the contents of the manuscript, so we know what each fragment contains. And, and this is a, um, an extensive clerical task, which the creators of, of the um, editions such as the Nestle Aland Nopum Testamentum Grecae have undertaken under the auspices of groups such as the Wurttemberg Bible Society and the British Bible Society. So that's how, that, that's how I know this information is, is through the works of others, that no man can um, find all these things out for himself and pursue them all, right? It's just not possible. So when I cite numbers of manuscripts or names of manuscripts, I'm using the Nestle um, Aland system. For examples, among the papyri remnants of, of, of the Book of Acts, papyri 8, PA, contains all or, all or part of about 28 verses from Acts chapters 4, 5, and 6. P29, which dates to the 3rd century, contains parts of three verses from Acts chapter 26. That's it. P45, papyri 45, which dates to the 3rd century, contains larger portions of 13 different chapters of Acts from chapters 4 through 17. That papyri also contains large portions of each of the Gospels. A companion papyri, P46, contains large portions of nine of Paul's epistles and is esteemed to date to about 200 A.D. Those two papyri, P45 and P46, are part 
of a collection of manuscripts called the Chester Beatty Papyri. Some of them are stored in, in Dublin, Ireland, and some of them in the University of Michigan. That's just an example of a cross-section of what some of the ancient papyri contain concerning the Book of Acts. Those of the great onkyols, which date to the 6th century and earlier, and which attest to the Book of Acts, are also numerous. These are the codices Sinaiticus and Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, Ephraimisiri, Beze, and then there's a series of codices which are known to us only by their numbers, numbers assigned by those same academics, 048, 057, 066, 076, and so on. Of these, of these great, great uncles, what which are, are, are usually um, more durable material than the papyri that they're actually um, inscribed on vellum, which is made from animal skins. Of these, the Codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, and possibly the Codex known as 057-057, all date to the 4th century. And the Codex 0189 is dated to the 2nd or 3rd centuries. Most of the other codices employed in, in the Christogenian and New Testament translation of Acts date to the 5th century. Of these great onkyos, some contain complete copies of Acts. That includes the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus. The codices Ephraim Siri, which dates to the 5th century, and the Beze are each missing some portions of several chapters. They've been damaged over the centuries. Most of the other codices contain only fragments. For example, that 3rd century codex, 0189 contains only verses 3 through 21 of Acts chapter 5. That's it. it. It contains roughly those 20 verses or parts of them. 19 verses. Yet all of these fragmentary manuscripts are important. <clears throat> the fragmentary manuscripts are important because when they're discovered and, and dated, they are a good indication of the consistency of those manuscripts which we do have and which have been passed down to us in a relatively complete form, manuscripts such as the Vaticanus or the Alexandrinus, over the centuries. So we have two, basically two types of, of manuscript. We have manuscripts that have been passed down and, and preserved and, and copied over the centuries. And then we have manuscripts like the papyri and some of these great onkyos, which have been discovered recently. And due to the facts of their discovery, they're known to be of great antiquity. They may be found in, in a, um, a demolished old building and dug out of the ground in clay jars, which has happened, that they may be found in cemeteries. Cemeteries, ancient cemeteries, are, are, um, have been a treasure trove of ancient manuscripts over the years but where people are buried with manuscripts in clay jars and, and things like that, which preserved um, parts of them, either fragments or more extensive parts. And, and we know from the facts surrounding their discovery roughly how old they are. So, so when those manuscripts that we dig out of the ground that, that date to the 
second or third centuries, basically corroborate the, the contents of manuscripts that have been passed down to us over um, 17 or 1800 or, or years or longer, that then we could be pretty sure of, of the, um, even though they, they never match exactly due to the, the, the faults of men and, and the errors of scribes, well, we can be quite sure that the general text of the scriptures as we have it is rather reliable, and, and that's how we know that. And, and it takes a hell of a lot more that, than a five-minute study or, or a um, or, or a fifteen-minute YouTube or, or um, even a two-hour documentary. To, to arrive at the conclusions that, that I've um, offered throughout my, my, my presentations. Now we have Acts chapter 2. We won't, con we, we won't complete Acts chapter 2 tonight, but we'll, um, we'll get almost halfway into it. Verse 1, and on the fulfillment of the 50th day, they were all together in the same place. The Codex Sinaiticus omits the word for all, or I should say wants the word for all. The majority text upon which the King James Version is based elaborates slightly with, well, with no um, corroboration in the ancient manuscripts where it says they were all together with one accord in the same place. Here and throughout the book of Acts, the word-for-word -word reading of the Codex Beze. The Codex Beze, we must remember, is the, um, the only one of the ancient codices that the King James translators had access to. They had access to it because it was in a monastery in France, originally. It's dated to the 5th century. Here and throughout the book of Acts, the word-for-word -word reading of that codex is drastically different in many places. However, we shall only make a note of those places where the actual meaning is, is, is changed significantly. As an example of, of where the text differs, but the meaning doesn't really change significantly, the Codex Beze reads this first verse, and it came to pass in those days, so we see there's some elaboration there, of the fulfillment of the 50th day, all of them being in the same place. And the sentence would not end because of the grammar, but it would rather be joined to verse 2. This is exemplary of how the form of the language in the Codex Beze is quite different from the other manuscripts, but the meaning is still the same. The meaning is still similar. And that's often the case where it varies, although some of those variations are, are significant when you read the Greek. I'll ignore most of the Codex Beze variations throughout this presentation of Acts. The fulfillment of the 50th day, that's the literal translation, the literal meaning of the Greek word for fulfillment, but it signifies the arrival of the day. The Greeks didn't necessarily see the fulfillment of a day as its end 
but as its occurrence. The clause may have read the arrival of the day of Pentecost, which is the Feast of Weeks, described at Leviticus 23.16 and Deuteronomy 16, verses 9 and 10. It's called the 50th, which is basically the meaning of Pentecost and, and in Greek, and, and therefore it's simply called Pentecost in English versions even of, of the Septuagint. For instance, at 12 Maccabees, I'm sorry, at 2 Maccabees, chapter 12, verse 32, what, where it's the name Pentecost is actually defined for us. Either name for this feast, either Hebrew or Greek, comes from the reckoning of its date. And, and here I'll read Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 9 and 10. Seven weeks shalt thou number unto thee, begin to number the seven weeks from such time as thou beginnest to put the sickle to the corn, corn being in this case an archaic English word for grain, and thou shalt keep the feast of weeks unto Yahweh thy God with the tribute of a freewill offering of thine hand, which thou shalt give unto Yahweh thy God, according as Yahweh thy God has blessed thee. So there we see the commandment for the keeping of what became known as the Pentecost. At 2 Maccabees, chapter 12, verses 30 to 33, we see the name defined so that we're sure that the Pentecost and the Feast of Weeks are the one and the same, right? I'll read from verse 30. There's some interesting historical information in, in this passage, which I really don't have um, the wherewithal to, to, to delve into in this presentation. But I'll read from, from, from verse 30 from the entire passage. But when the Judeans that dwelt there had testified that the Scythopolitans dealt lovingly with them and entreated them kindly in the time of their adversity, they gave them thanks, desiring them to be friendly still unto them. And so they came to Jerusalem, the feast of the weeks approaching. And after the feast, called Pentecost, they went forth against Gorgias, the governor of Edomia, who came out with 3,000 men afoot and 400 horsemen. So we see in 2 Maccabees, the, fe the feast of weeks and the Pentecost equated. Acts 2, chapter, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 2, verse 2. And suddenly there came from the heaven a noise, just as a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them like tongues, I'm sorry, and there appeared to them tongues like as fire, being divided and set upon each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues, just as the Spirit gave them to utter. From the Septuagint, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 23. Behold, I will bring forth to you the utterance of my breath, and I will instruct you in my speech. In this passage of Acts, the word for speak 
is laleo. It's the verb laleo, L-A-L-E-O. And the verb for utter, utter is aposengomahi, Strong's number 669. So I had to distinguish these two words, even though they're synonyms. Laleo is a common word, but apofengomahi is not. Thayer defines it to speak out, to speak forth, to pronounce, and explains that the pointed sayings of wise men and philosophers were called by the Greeks apothegmata, after the noun form of the same word. So laleo is speech, but we would consider apothegmata as sayings or something a little more profound. The gospel is the word, the catalyst for the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophecy found in Ezekiel chapter 37, which spans a great deal of time because it's taken us 2,000 years and we still don't get the word of God from verse 31. I'm sorry, from chapter 37, verse 1 of Ezekiel. The hand of Yahweh was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of Yahweh and set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones. And caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there were very many in the open valley. And lo, they were very dry. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, Yahweh, thou knowest. Again he said unto me, Prophecy upon these bones, and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus saith Yahweh God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will bring flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And you shall know that I am Yahweh. So I prophesied, and I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise. And behold, a shaking. And the bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Then he said unto me, Prophecy unto the wind. prophecy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith Yahweh God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. This passage in Ezekiel is also reminiscent of Genesis 2-7. And Yahweh God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. Where it says in Ezekiel, in this last verse, verse 9, Breathe upon these slain, that they may live. The children of Israel 
the nation being the wife of Yahweh their God. They were under the penalty of death ever since they were found in adultery and put out of the house of the husband. This breath of the Spirit of God is a product of his mercy upon them that he chose to die instead on their behalf in order to release them from that penalty. In Adam, we all experience death. And in Christ, we all have life. This is the story of the gospel of Christ. And its fulfillment begins here at the Pentecost, where the deposit of the Spirit and the gift of tongues is granted that the apostles may spread the gospel to the dispersed of the children of Israel. There's a connection, the rushing wind. of Acts chapter 2 and the wind which Ezekiel prophesied that was to put that breath back into the back into those dry bones back into those people living in punishment speaking speaking to the drunkards of Ephraim meaning the disobedient people of the tribes of Israel in the Assyrian deportations. Yahweh connects the speaking in another language to the spread of the gospel and directly to Christ. Where he says in Isaiah chapter 28, and I quote from verse 9, whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. Paul later paraphrases this exact verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 14 in reference to the apostolic gift of tongues, which we will cite again shortly. From verse 12 of Isaiah chapter 28, to whom he said, this is the rest wherewith ye may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing Yet they would not hear. This is the rest. This rest is the rest of Yahweh, which Paul discusses in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, which Joshua had given the children of Israel, had not given the children of Israel an occasion to enter into because of their disobedience, and which Israel still has not entered into for their lack of obedience. Here we see that rest Paul discusses in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, discussed in Isaiah chapter 28. 
in connection with being obedient to God. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. To whom he said, this is the rest, wherewith ye may cause the weary to rest, and this is refreshing, yet they would not hear. Paul didn't make it up. He got it from Isaiah. But the word of Yahweh, verse 13 of Isaiah 28, but the word of Yahweh was unto them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Wherefore, hear the word of Yahweh, you scornful men, that rule this people which is in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with hell that we had agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Therefore thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone. Christ quotes this in reference to himself. A precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Therefore, the speaking in tongues and that rest which Yahweh offers to Israel in exchange for their obedience and the acceptance of the gospel of Christ. All of these things are related here. The speaking in tongues is prophesied that the gospel may be brought to the dispersed of the children of Israel. Paul paraphrases Isaiah 28.11 in reference to Israel, at 1 Corinthians 14.21, where he says, and I quote, In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips will I speak to this people, and yet for all that will they not hear me, saith Yahweh. Paul cites this passage to demonstrate the reason why the gift of tongues was dispensed by the Holy Spirit at that time. Now that time has passed. And once the apostles had spread the gospel and Israel, or at least sufficient portions of Israel, had received it, the gift of tongues was no longer necessary. Therefore, also, the gift of speaking in tongues was not to bring the gospel to every other nation so that every person in every other nation could somehow be converted and saved. Rather, it was expressly so that the children of Israel, this people, as it says in Isaiah, this people which were scattered by Yahweh among the other Genesis 10 nations, it was given so that they could hear the gospel and return to him. This is also evident in Isaiah chapter 66. And I quote from verse 18. For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall come that I will gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. The kingdom of heaven is like a gnat 
And I will set a sign among them. And I will send those that escape of them. Yahweh's talking about the dispersed of Israel, the people taken away in the Assyrian deportations. That's who the subject is here. And I will send those that escape of them under the nations to Tarshish, Pul, and Lud that draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the isles afar off. All of these are among the other Adamic Genesis 10 nations that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations, not the Gentiles, among the nations. And they shall bring all your brethren, the children of Israel, only the children of Israel, all your brethren, for an offering unto Yahweh out of all nations. They're not bringing all the other nations. They're bringing Israel out of all nations upon horses and in chariots and in litters and upon mules and upon swift beasts to my holy mountain Jerusalem, saith Yahweh. As the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the houses, into the house of Yahweh. Those clean vessels can only be clean according to the law. Adamic Israelite bodies. None of this could ever be interpreted to include non-Adamic races or anybody but the children of Israel. Not all nations are being gathered and brought to the temple. The children of Israel are being gathered out of all nations. There is another analogy from Scripture which may be pointed out here, which is valid, and that is the symbol of the tongues of fire. For from this time, the apostles were to bear the gospel to Israel. At Isaiah chapter 30, verse 27, Yahweh states, Behold, the name of Yahweh cometh from afar, burning with his anger, and the burden thereof is heavy. His lips are full of indignation, and his tongue is a devouring fire. As Christ says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. That sword, as we learn in Revelation chapter 19, and elsewhere, proceeds from his mouth. Therefore, here in Acts, we have the deposit of the Spirit of God represented by tongues of fire. Acts chapter 2, verse 5. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Judeans, devout men from every nation under the heaven. The Codex Sinaiticus wants the word Judeans, as do certain manuscripts of the Latin Vulgate. The word is present in many of the other Latin and in all other extant Greek witnesses of the passage that the term Judeans is used both in an ethnographic and in a religious sense, here is qualified by the text itself at verse 11, where it refers to both Judeans and converts. 
you could be a convert to one's religion. You can't be a convert to one's nation. However, since we must read Judeans as an ethnographic and religious designation, it may be asserted by some that ethnos is being used geographically, geographically, a use which is not found in the New Testament. That is not necessarily the case, as the writer may very well intend to describe Judeans living among every other nation, not in a geographical area, but among a people. The Judeans were living among every other nation under heaven, nations being people groups and not geographical entities. Examining those nations as they are listed in the passage to follow, we once again see that the reference to every nation under heaven refers only to the white, or, or in some cases mostly white at this time, nations of the Oikumene, the Adamic world. Other passages of scripture referring to every nation or all nations cannot be taken out of the context of this biblical use of the phrase. Every nation under heaven only included every nation of the white Adamic oikumene, oikumene being a word which the Greeks used to designate the living space of the race, of their race, the, the, the Greco-Roman world. As Luke says in the opening chapters of his gospel, Caesar sent out to tax the entire world. That word is oikumene, the entire world as known to the Greeks and Romans, the white world. They were familiar with lands and people beyond that world. But the lands and people beyond that world, beyond its borders, were not considered a part of their world. For instance, the people in India and China and sub-Saharan Africa. The Greeks and Romans knew about them, but they were never considered a part of their world, of their oikumene. So if here we have a list of nations all belonging to that Greco-Roman oikumene, and Luke says that this is men from every nation under the heaven, wherever else he writes, all nations, every nation, we have to take it in context with this passage. And the passage at the beginning of his gospel, which states that Caesar went out and taxed the whole world. Caesar didn't tax China, he didn't tax Negroes, and he didn't tax whatever the hell that is living in South America at the time. Acts 2, verse 6. Then with the occurrence of this sound, referring to the sound of the violent rushing wind, described in verse 2, the multitude gathered and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language, and they were astonished and wondered, saying, Behold, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? 
the Codices, Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, and Ephraim Siri have, they were all astonished. The majority text has, saying to one another. The narrative implies that Galileans could be readily distinguished from Judeans, such as those in Jerusalem. We also saw that recorded in the denial of Christ by Peter, that the people, the servants of the house of the high priest in Jerusalem readily knew that Peter was a Galilean from his speech. Here again we see that same thing. They were easily distinguished as Galileans, the men speaking in tongues, and all of the apostles were, at this time, Galileans. In contrast to the, the Judeans of other places, such as those in the ancient land of Judah to the south. Acts chapter 2, verse 8. Then how do we, each here in our own language, with which we were raised, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, and those dwelling in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Asia in this instance meaning Asia Minor, the western part of Anatolia, south of the Troad, and Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the regions of Libya throughout Curinae or Cyrene, and the Romans who were sojourning, both Judeans and converts, Cretans and Arabs, we hear their speaking in our own tongues the magnificent things of Yahweh. Now when we see these place names here, or even these tribal names like Arabs, we can't imagine the, that these persons were Cretans and Arabs. We can't imagine that these persons were Romans and Phrygians and Pamphylians and Cappadocians because it's said that they were all Judeans. Now it does say that they were converts. Here we have Judeans, men who were ostensibly of the Israelite stock of Judea who practiced the religion of those in Jerusalem but who had, for one reason or another, been raised in different places throughout the region. There was a Hellenistic dispersion of Judeans, which was certainly distinct from the much earlier captivities and dispersions of Israel and Judah. This later dispersion of Judeans were people who had traveled throughout the Greco-Roman Oikumene for personal reasons, be they economic or otherwise. A good example are Priscilla and Aquila, who had been living in Rome until the Edict of Claudius. We see that in Acts chapter 18, verse 2. Even Paul of Tarsus himself, who was born and raised in the city Tarsus, which is in Calicia, which was far north of Judea, up in Anatolia, in eastern Anatolia, and who retained ties there in his adulthood, which we see in Acts chapter 9, verse 30, and Acts chapter 22, verse 3. There was also a remnant of people of the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities 
who had never departed Mesopotamia or the area around Babylon, and who maintained the Hebrew religious practices to one degree or another. The apocryphal story of Tobit is a good example of one such family of people. Now, some of those people may be here as well. These Judeans were in Jerusalem on account of the Feast of Pentecost, except for their converts, who appear from the context to be a minority. They were all Judeans. Pentecost was one of the three annual feasts upon which all of the ancient Israelites were required to appear before Yahweh in the temple. Three times a year that was required. The other two feasts were the Passover and the Ingathering, which is corresponding with the Feast of Tabernacles. So these are Judeans, and, and probably refers to the, the Atonement, which is right before the Feast of Tabernacles, right? These are Judeans who were raised among the Parthians, Judeans who were raised among the Medes, Judeans who were raised among the Persians, Judeans who were raised in Arabia, Judeans who were raised on Crete. We can't buy, well, we can't see universalism in this passage. Ostensibly, all of these people, their converts, all of their converts, they were all Judeans except for their converts, and all of their converts were ostensibly men of those same Genesis 10 Adamic nations where these Judeans were, were residing. When we see Paul later travel to the, the Judean synagogues in Greece, there were Greek people attending each one of those synagogues. There were always, it was always described in Paul's travels that there were Judeans in the various synagogues and there were also Greek people in those synagogues. Many of the people of those Genesis 10 nations may, have, may well have been earlier dispersions of the Israelites who when they were dispersed, they were actually pagans and were later converted to, be, to, to the religion of the Judeans. And there were plenty of them in Mesopotamia and all the rest of these places. Arabia, Arabia to the Romans was, was a geographical region and it was quite large. It was about the same size that it is today. But at that time, it was somewhat more fertile and apparently somewhat more inhabited. Deuteronomy 16, three times in a year shall all thy males appear before Yahweh thy God in the place which he shall choose. In the feast of unleavened bread and in the feast of weeks, that's this Pentecost, that's why all these Judeans were gathered in Jerusalem. And in the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before Yahweh empty. There we have it. Here it is fully evident that the speaking in tongues means the ability to speak 
incomprehensible known languages. Here in Acts it is described this, that this ability is granted by God to the apostles and as a gift from God it represents the ability to speak in a tongue which the speaker was not familiar with before time or was not normally expected to be familiar with. Speaking in tongues is certainly not the babble that so many fools suppose, for which there is no support in the Bible. Paul discusses the gifts of tongues in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where he concludes in verse 9, So likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to be understood, how shall it be known what is spoken? For you shall speak into the air. Here the men hearing the apostles recognized the tongues, which were their own native languages. And they easily understood what was being spoken. By that they were edified. By that they accepted the gospel, which was the very reason for the dispensation of the gift of speaking in tongues. Paul continues his discussion of the gift of speaking in tongues in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And he tells us why the gift was dispensed. And he also gives us a sound reason to reject the superstitions of modern Pentecostalism. And I will quote 1 Corinthians, four, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 14, verses 21 through 23. No, I'm sorry, maybe it is 1 Corinthians 14. In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people. And yet for all that will they not hear me, saith Yahweh. Wherefore tongues are for a sign. And there we see that Paul quoted Isaiah 28:11. Wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them who believe. If therefore the whole assembly be come together into one place, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say that ye are mad? The modern Pentecostals are indeed mad. And the gift of tongues no longer necessary, since it was a matter of prophecy, that it would be endowed by Yahweh God only so that the, only so that the dispersed of Israel may receive the gospel. To use it for any other purpose is foolishness. Verse 12. And they were all astonished and perplexed one saying to another, What do you suppose this to be? But others scoffing said that they are full of new wine. That word wine causes a lot of dispute in certain, amongst certain sects, where it appears in the New Testament. The word glucus, Strong's number 1098, which appears only here in the New Testament, is new wine. 
where the ninth edition of Liddell and Scott's Greek-English lexicon also supplies the definitions sweet new wine and, number two, grape juice. Yet in the context here, it is apparent that the term was used to infer that the men were thought to be inebriated. The Greek word oinus is commonly wine, and it appears often in the New Testament, and it can't possibly ever mean grape juice. In the Hebrew language, a phrase which is translated as new wine is found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, in the scroll labeled 1Q Rule of the Community, column 6, and again in the scroll labeled 1Q Rule of the Congregation in column 2. I will read part of that. It states in part, and I quote, And when they gather at the table of community or to drink the new wine, and the table of community is prepared, and the new wine is mixed for drinking, no one should stretch out the hand, his hand, to the first fruit of the bread and of the new wine before the priest. In other words, the priest eats first, right? In that sect, anyway. That the wine was mixed for drinking certainly assures that it was indeed wine and not merely grape juice, which was being referred to by the writers of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Likewise, the men gathered together here who were being described in Acts had suspected that the apostles were intoxicated by drinking glucose or new wine. Herodotus, the historian, 450 BC perhaps, he marveled at the Scythians because they did not mix their wine with water before drinking, as we see described here in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was customary among the Greeks to mix their wine with water before drinking it, to cut it with water. Herodotus says of Cleomenes, a king of Sparta who went mad, and I quote, his own countrymen declared that his madness proceeded not from any supernatural cause whatever, but from the habit of drinking wine unmixed with water, which he learned of the Scythians. That's Herodotus' Herodotus's Histories, Book 6, Paragraph 84, or Section 84. It may also be conjectured that the term for new wine was used here in Acts only because of the season. It was early in the harvest season. Acts 2, verse 14. It was definitely wine that the men in Jerusalem thought the apostles had been drinking. Then Petro, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and spoke out to them. Men, Judeans, and all of those dwelling in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and hearken to my words. For they are not intoxicated as you suspect. Indeed, it is the third hour of the day. The Codex Beze has Peter standing with the ten 
apostles. However, in the first chapter, we have seen the appointment of Matthias to fill out the number of the twelve, and he must have been among them at this point. The third hour of the day, which began at sunrise, was typically between 8 and 9 a.m., approximately. Peter asserted that it was too early in the day for any of them to have been drinking. Verse 16. Rather, this is that which was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the day's future, says Yahweh, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your youths shall see visions, and your elders shall dream dreams. Where the King James Version has the last days here, we read the day's future. The Greek word, eschatos, Strong's number 2078, is literally of space the farthest, the uttermost, the extreme, the last. And of time, it means literally the last or the end. Yet here the word is interpreted in the Christogenian New Testament by a Hebraism, the future, for which I would refer to Strong's definition of the Hebrew word, akarif, Strong's Hebrew Dictionary number 319. Akarif means the last or end, hence the future. That quote is directly from Strong's original Greek dictionary. That's the way the word may well have been rendered at Genesis 49.1, where Jacob tells his 12 sons that he's going to tell them what will befall them in the last days, as the King James has it there. It probably should have read the future. That's the Hebrew idiom. And that's why I interpret the word eschatos in that manner here. Because the prophecies that Jacob made of, of the 12 tribes have been fulfilled over time since Jacob uttered those words and not necessarily in the literal last days. It was an idiom for the future. So here we see another Hebraism. I would assert we see another Hebraism in Luke because Luke acquired these early records from people whose original language was Hebrew or Aramaic. In the Septuagint and in the King James at Joel 2.28, it doesn't say Escotus. It doesn't say the last days. It says after these things. In both of those translations, in, in the Masoretic text and the, Septuag and, and, and the King James Version and the, um, the Septuagint, as we have the Greek, the Greek manuscripts of the Septuagint now, it just says after these things. Where we read in verse 17, your sons and your daughters, the Codex Beze has their sons and their daughters, where it seems to be apparent that some scribe would negate 
or seek to negate the promises of the Old Testament concerning the New, as if such a thing were possible, by attempting to distinguish, and putting that distinguishing in the mouth of Peter, between ancient Israel and the people whom Peter is addressing here. This is really a clearly dishonest move by a scribe. This codex also has the youths and the elders rather than Joel, the prophet Peter is quoting, speaking to the children of Israel, your youths and your elders. Of course, Joel was speaking of Israelites and he wrote intending only Israelites. And here Peter speaks addressing only the descendants of those same people. Separately, that phrase, shall prophecy, in verse 17, your sons and your daughters shall prophecy, may have been interpreted, shall interpret prophecy. It may have been rendered in English, shall interpret prophecy. And I've often done that, especially in Paul's epistles. The Greek verb bearing either meaning, the Greek verb can indicate one of three meanings of, of, of um, prophecy or a prophet. A prophet can be someone who foretells the future in, in the Old Testament sense of the word, of the Old Testament prophets, writing of future events inspired by God, under inspiration of God, of course. Or a prophet in Greek can be someone who interprets the will of the gods. In the Greek language, a prophet can be someone who simply reads the prophecies and can interpret them. And, and that would fulfill one of the definitions of the word. The third use of the word is, um, one example is Christ at, at the well with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. The third use of the word is someone who reveals things that are, um, that, that are expected to be unknown to that person. Where Christ told the woman that um, she had had five husbands, for instance, and she said, hey, I perceive you're a prophet. Well, well, there we have it. She called him a prophet because he revealed to her something that he, did, he couldn't have known. So, so that's three meanings of that word prophet in Greek. And here it could have been interpreted that your sons and daughters shall interpret prophecy. Verse 18, continuing Peter's quote from Joel. And then upon my men servants and upon my maidservants, who, who can only be the children of Israel, right? Jacob, my servant. In those days I will pour out from my spirit and they shall prophecy or interpret prophecy. That's okay. It, it could be accepted both ways. And I shall make or literally give wonders in the heaven above and signs upon the earth below, blood and fire and a vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming great day and appearance of Yahweh. And it shall be that all who shall be called by the name of Yahweh shall be preserved. Now that is a, um, a controversial translation, but that's okay because I stand by it. As this passage in Acts is recorded in most of the ancient manuscripts, with a few exceptions, 
Much of this quote from Joel recorded here in Acts chapters 2, verses 17 through 21, as being given by Peter, is nearly identical to the text of the Septuagint found in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. There are a few variations, such as the use of the Greek word eskados, and the words, and they shall prophecy, found at the end of verse 18, which is not found in Joel, in the corresponding passage. The codices Sinaiticus and Beze want the words rendered and appearance in verse 20. It's only the great coming day of Yahweh. Where the Codex Vaticanus and the majority text, and therefore the King James, both have, before that which is coming, the great day and appearance of Yahweh. So there are some variations, but for the most part, the Greek is identical to the Septuagint. The King James Version reads the end of verse 21, Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The primary difference that the Christogenian New Testament has with this rendering, that all who shall be called by the name of the Lord shall be preserved, or of Yahweh shall be preserved, is in the reading of the Greek verb, epikaleo. Strong's Dictionary, number 1941. This is something you'll never see in a concordance, is the form of the verb. Here I shall give the reasons for this difference. The form of the verb epikaleo, found in Acts 2.21, is epikalasetahi. I know that doesn't mean much to you, right? Epikalasetahi. It'll be in the notes posted on the website. The same form of the verb appears at Joel 2.32 in the Septuagint, where Brenton also rendered the phrase as whosoever shall call, whosoever shall call on after the manner of the King James Version. Yet the verb, this form of the verb, epikale setahi, is a middle voice, or also, also called a medium voice form of the verb. Voice is the name given to the aspect of verbal forms in a language which indicate the relationship of the verb to its subject. In English, we often use auxiliary words to help indicate this relationship. And we do not always change the form of the verb itself. With verbs, there are three voices generally recognized by grammarians, which are referred to as the active, the passive, and the middle. In Greek, the form of the verb changes according to the voice being indicated by the writer. With verbs of the active voice, and, and we may all remember this from grade school without having studied Greek, with verbs of the active voice, the subject of the verb produces the action. With verbs of the passive voice, the subject of the verb receives the action. Verbs of the middle voice are found in Greek, but they're not found in English. We use auxiliary words to describe the actions in English. These verbs indicate that the subject both produces and receives the action. Therefore, the Christogenian New Testament interprets 
this word, epikalesetahi, in this very manner. We uphold that this middle voice use of the verb is intending to refer to all Israelites, to the people upon whom Yahweh has placed his name. Those are the children of Israel who accept that fact by accepting his gospel are already calling themselves by his name. I will quote pertinent scriptures. Numbers chapter 6, verse 23. Speak unto Aaron, from verse 23, I'll quote through 27. Speak unto Aaron, and uh, speak unto Aaron and unto his son, saying, on this, why, on this why shall ye bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, Yahweh bless thee and keep thee. Yahweh make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. Yahweh lifts up his countenance upon thee and gives thee peace. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. From Isaiah 43. But now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. That was verse 1. I will skip ahead to verse 5. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east. And gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons and daughters from afar. I'm sorry. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Even every one that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yeah, I have made him. From Isaiah 45, from verse 3. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches of secret places, that thou mayest know that I, Yahweh, which called thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have called, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. Isaiah 62. Isaiah was the prophet most quoted by Christ. For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness, and the salvation thereof is a lamp that burns. And the nations shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory, and thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of Yahweh shall name. Isaiah 63. The people of thy holiness have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary. We are thine. Thou never bearest rule over them. 
They were not called by thy name. Revelation, chapter 3, verse 12. He who prevails, I shall make him a pillar in the temple of my God, that he will no longer go outside. And I shall write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, of the new Jerusalem which descends from heaven from my God and my new name. These prophecies are the reason why we interpret Acts 2.21 and Joel 2.32 in this manner. Here is Joel 2.32 from the Septuagint. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of Yahweh shall be saved. We would translate this Greek also as all who shall be called by the name of Yahweh shall be preserved. For in Mount Sion and in Jerusalem shall the saved one be as the Lord has said. And they did have glad tidings preached to them. They did have the gospel preached to them. Whom Yahweh has called, the final clause of Joel 2.32, referring to those whom Yahweh has called, those whom the Lord has called, supports our assertions entirely. The verb, the medium voice verb, we believe should be translated, all who shall be called by the name of Yahweh shall be preserved. Clifton Amaheiser did a paper some years ago entitled Early Rain versus Later Rain. For the basis of that paper, Clifton cites James 5.7, where it says, and I quote, Be patient, therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Master. Behold, the husbandman waits for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he receives the early and the later rain. James is certainly alluding to the text found at Joel 2.23, the Septuagint version of Joel 2.23, a passage which precedes that part of Joel which Peter is quoted here, reads thus, and I quote, Rejoice then and be glad, ye children of Sion, in Yahweh your God, for he has given you food fully, and he will rain on you the early and the later rain as before. Clifton's paper compares the dispensation of the Spirit of God which happened at that first Pentecost to the early rain, and that which we expect at the fulfillment of the age to the later rain. Here's what Clifton said of the two rains, and I quote, Here the early and later rain represent, firstly, the rain of seed time at planting, and secondly, the rain of ripening before the harvest. The first fell in Judea about the beginning of our November after the seed was sown. The second toward the end of our April, as the ears began filling out in preparation for the full harvest, as their crops developed during the winter and early spring. It is obvious that this passage typifies the beginning of the Ecclesia period and extends until the time of Yahshua's second advent, with a long, dry season between the two rains. We're in that season now. Prayerfully, we're towards the end of it. 
Most good farmers are aware that a moderate dry spell after the seed has been planted can be beneficial, causing the plants to develop a vigorous root system so that when the rains finally come, the crop will produce an abundant yield. And I continue quoting Clifton. This may be a strange way to look back on the history of the, the Ecclesia, but this is what James and the prophets before him were alluding to. The reader needs to differentiate between the early and later rain, as each are different in their respective nature. In other words, we are not instructed to reenact the events of the day of Pentecost as a pattern of our worship. While there were miraculous phenomena at Pentecost as recorded in Acts, such as the speaking in tongues, it was only in earnest, a down payment of the Spirit. At the day of Pentecost, there were gathered many good fig Judahites from many lands speaking diverse languages, and a miracle was provided in both the speaking and the hearing for that event to be a success. The present-day Pentecostal and charismatic movements have made a mockery of the original happenings recorded in Acts chapter 2. Nor do the present-day Pentecostals and charismatics allude to Old Testament passages in order to, in order to explain why there was a Pentecost in the first place. And I would say they couldn't, neither could they explain why there was speaking of tongues. Pentecost in the Old Testament was a feast day mandated for Israelites only. Whereas today's Pentecostals and Charismatics invite every unclean race to gather with them. And of course that's true. So Clifton posited that in this manner the history of the Ecclesia of Yahweh parallels the cycle of planting and harvest in the agricultural year, with which we must certainly agree. Of course we have the planting of the wheat and the tares with the creation of Adam. But the history of Israel does in many ways parallel the agricultural year as it was regulated in the law. The, the dispensation of the Spirit at that first Pentecost was merely a deposit the early rain poured upon the assembly in order for it to be able to grow and take root. In the same manner, it is described by Paul in his epistles to the Corinthians and Ephesians. To Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. Now he who is establishing us with you in the anointed and anoints us is Yahweh, who is also confirming us and is providing the deposits of the Spirit in our hearts. That word Arabone, that the King James Version translated as earnest. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. And indeed, we who are being burdened in the tabernacle, meaning these earthly bodies, bemoan, since we wish not to be stripped, but to be clothed in order that the mortal would be consumed by life. Now he who has been cultivating us, 
the same agrarian language of Joel and James, for the same thing as Yahweh, who has been giving to us the deposits of the Spirit. We want to be clothed in order that the mortal would be consumed by life. Paul explains that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we will discuss it shortly. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In whom you also, having heard the word of truth, the good message of your deliverance, Paul can only be speaking to the children of Israel, in which also, having believed, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of the promise, which is a deposit of our inheritance in regard to redemption of the possession in praise of his honor, Israel being the precious possession. The following is from the notes from my presentation on 2 Peter, given here in April of 2012, and I quote, the word which Paul used to describe that descending of the Spirit at Pentecost was translated as earnest in the King James Version. The word arabone means deposit. It was used by the Greeks of money placed as a deposit for the purchase of something, just as we use the word deposit today. The apostles received a deposit of the spirit representing the future restoration of man once again reconciled to God, to that condition in which our first parents were created before they fell from grace through sin. Wesley Swift and others referred to that condition as the Shekinah glory, which is probably not altogether inaccurate. With a literal reading of some of Paul's other statements, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in Philippians chapter 2, and also in Matthew chapter 13, where Yahshua said of the last days, then the righteous shall shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their father. We see that condition as it is described by the apostles of the men whom they saw at the event called the transfiguration on the mount. I will read from Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 31. And there it came to pass, after those words, about eight days, taking Peter and John and Jacob, he went up to the mountain to pray. And it happened upon his praying that the image of his face was different, and his garment gleaming white. And behold, two men were speaking with him, which were Moses and Elijah who appearing with effulgence, with glory in the King James, and the word is effulgence, brightness, had spoke of his departure, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. That's the same effulgence Paul refers to as being clothed in, in Philippians, as being clothed in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We see that change in Christ in the transfiguration on the mound. That's the Christian promise. That's the, the mortal being clothed by life. From Luke chapter 6, verse 40, there is no student above the teacher, but all having been restored shall be as his teacher. Therefore, all Israel can expect to eventually achieve such a condition, just as the words of Christ are recorded in John 10, 35, where he tells us, 
If he spoke of them as gods to whom the word of God had come, and the writing is not able to be broken, how can we neglect such an expectation? We really can't. That's why we have to separate ourselves from those who do not have that expectation. Come out from among them and touch not the unclean. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. I will be here tomorrow night with Against the Paul Bashers, part whatever, 2153. I, I, I think it's 19. I'm joking. It won't run that long. I will be here next Friday, Yahweh willing, with the balance of Acts chapter 2. Thank you and good night.